Welcome to the Living Faith Fellowship Conference podcast. The Living Faith Fellowship is a peer network of like-minded churches united under a single biblical authority and one common mission. You're about to hear a message from one of the many conferences hosted by the Living Faith Fellowship every year. We pray it's a blessing. Uh, so we're going to be covering, this is Chris Allred. He is our intern, and so he does all kinds of stuff from, I just saw him taking out the trash. He, he cleans the church and uh, does the lawn stuff and also shadows pastors and, and ministry. He uh, leads our middle school ministry right now, so uh, we're really thankful for him, believes God's called him into ministry, and so this is a good opportunity for us just to spend a lot of time with him. And so he's going to help me out today, not only because when he teaches this and he has to study it, he's going to... When you have to teach something, you learn it at a much greater level. Uh, but also because he has a lot of experiences that he can interject into here and give us some, some practical, what does this look like? Um, so I'm excited about that. Um, so before we start, let me just start in prayer uh, to kind of focus my heart. I've been receiving all day and just um, get my mindset on this. Father, uh, we do need you today. We need the Holy Spirit. He's the teacher. And so we ask you to meet with us. We ask you to take uh, your wonderful word. Uh, you haven't called us to do anything that you didn't also give us instructions and a pattern to follow. And so we're thankful that you didn't just tell us to, to go and reach people and make disciples, but you've shown us how to do that in your word. And uh, God, we thank you for that. And I pray that today you would enlighten our eyes, that you'd open our understanding so that we can be able to serve you the way that you say, that we can make disciples not according to our own reason or what our culture thinks is right, but what your word dictates to us. And uh, God, we pray that we'll bring you glory by that. And even in this session now, God, I pray that uh, the name of Jesus would be magnified, that, that you'd receive glory today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So what you, you, everybody have notes? Do we need to get notes to somebody? Everybody good? Um, so uh, let me kind of explain a little bit of what you have there. Uh, this is where things become from um, doctrinal, from... What the scripture has said, you've seen the philosophy of discipleship, uh, and you've seen from Jay the seven stages of spiritual growth and how they relate to seven levels that you have to add to your faith from Second Peter chapter 1. Uh, and now what we're getting into is maybe a little more, uh, for us, more practical into how this plays out in our church. And so I wanted to start just with some understanding. The process of discipleship should take someone from that babe, all the way up to an, an aged man or woman, all right? or at least to that elder stage. And so the, the, that's the process of spiritual growth as a whole throughout someone's uh, from babe to full maturity. Uh, but what we're going to talk about today is just a small segment of that. So the way that we've arranged it in our church is there we've set up three phases to our discipleship ministry, from trying to get somebody from a babe, to all the way to aged. And if you're from one of our churches, you might have something very similar to this. Uh, you might call it uh, Discipleship 1, Discipleship 2, Discipleship 3. You might call that the church that I was discipled in. That's the way we phrased things. Um, so here we, we phrase them a little bit different. We have the first one's called Personal Discipleship. And you'll see on those little pyramids that you have on your notes, that personal discipleship is designed to take somebody from being like a babe up to being a child. You'll see the, the different levels that they should add to their faith in that time. 
All right, so that's just designed for this first stage. And then we have ministry tools and training. Ministry tools and training is designed to help them add the next three sequentially to what they've already added. And leadership tools and training is to bring them to that first. And we kind of model that. I think it's in your notes there over after Jesus' three calls that he tells us. Uh, disciples to come and follow him. He tells them in John chapter 1, uh, come. They, they ask him, where, where do you stay, Jesus? And he says, well, come and see. And all they do, they don't do anything except just follow Jesus around. And he does some miracles. He does a little bit of teaching just to them. Uh, but he, they're just walking with him, and they're learning how to walk with Jesus. And that's kind of the, the goal in that first one, right? Um, the second one, he says, come, and I'll make you fishers of men. And then he begins then having them participate in ministry. that they, Maybe you've never noticed before, but in the Gospels, Jesus' uh, disciples were baptizing. He had them doing baptizing instead of himself. So they begin to do, like the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, he's, he's giving them bread and they give the bread out, right? So he's involving them in the work of the ministry, teaching them how to preach. And then eventually he's going to send them out. He sends the 12 and then later he sends the 70. He's sending them out as leaders, all right, so there's kind of a, a process. And that third one, he says, come, take up your cross and follow me. And so th that's kind of the way we've structured after those three phases. And so today in the goals of discipleship should maybe more appropriately or specifically be called the goals of personal discipleship. This is just that first phase for us. Uh, what are the goals in this first phase? And it's um, kind of what we'll talk about uh, from here on out is that first phase. Probably as you, you get into uh, pastors trying to figure out how to grow people in those later phases, there's great conversations to be had on how to build a ministry that will help people learn ministry and then learn to be leaders. Um, but right now we're just talking about that first one, personal discipleship. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so um, this what we're talking about today, we want to add, we want to make sure they have faith. We want to add to their faith virtue, and we want them to add to their faith knowledge, and maybe, maybe just at the beginning of adding to their faith uh, temperance. And so let's just walk through the goals. I think it'll be uh, kind of clear as we get into it. Uh, goal number one, it's in your notes, is uh, to establish the disciple in the worship of God. So we wanted to establish the disciple in the worship of God. And so just by really quick review, uh, Jay had brought you through uh, the characteristics of a babe. And you'll recall that a babe uh, has had spiritual birth. That's the way you become a baby. You're born. So in John chapter 1 and verse 12, uh, if you receive Christ, you're, you become a son of God. In John chapter 3, he tells Nicodemus, uh, you must be born again. So there's, uh, Peter talks about being born again by the seed of the Word of God. So that salvation... So a babe has been born, right? They have salvation, but they have a deficiency. And that deficiency was carnality. We know that about babes in, second, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, Paul told the church at Corinth, I'd like to feed you with meat, but I can't. You guys are babes, you're carnal, right? So they, they have all this uh, problems with the sinful desires of their flesh. They can't handle meat. They need milk. Uh, this, this being a babe is demonstrated by the fact that there's divisions in their body, by the fact that there's envying and there's strife. And so we just see them being babies. And unfortunately, this is the way uh, most Christians stay throughout their entire Christian lives. 
a lot of times there's nobody who really knows how to help them grow out of that baby phase, so they just stay babies. So what do we want to do? Well, the solution is for them to add virtue. And I don't want to spend too much time on review, right, because you've already been through this. But we see Jesus, when he says virtue has gone out of him, he's doing miracles that change somebody's life. So we understand virtue has a power to transform, a power to heal, a power to change, right? And so we know that that's what we're called to be. We're, even that Second Peter chapter 1 says that we're called to virtue. All right, so that's, that's what we're supposed to add. We think about virtue... Uh, I don't know if Jay took you to Ruth chapter 3. Let me get the... Uh, oh, I should have been keeping up with this. All right, Ruth chapter 3, verse 11. I forgot I had a clicker. Uh, Ruth chapter 3 and verse 11. Um, speaking of Ruth, this is the first mention of Ruth, and uh, she's the only person who's called, specific person who's called a virtuous person. She's called a virtuous woman. It says, And now, my daughter, fear not, I will uh, do to thee all that thou requirest, for all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. This kinsman redeemer, this Jewish kinsman redeemer, this is what he says of Ruth. And if you think about Ruth's life, what made her virtuous? How did she demonstrate this virtue? Well, she left her old life and she changed, right? She, be, she leaves her people, she leaves her language, she leaves her gods, and she's, her life is totally transformed so, such that her kinsman redeemer, that's, that's our redeemer is Jesus, can say to her, now that's virtue. Everybody can see your virtue. And so that's the way we would understand virtue. So for our disciples, what we want them to demonstrate in the very first part, if they're going to grow in their faith, they have to add to their faith virtue. So we ought to see a change, a willingness to repent, a willingness to turn from the way they used to be and to grow up and to, to be different. If you think about a baby, you don't try to educate a baby. You don't try to give chores to a baby. Unfortunately, this is the way we, we usually treat things in churches. We usually try to give them a bunch of knowledge or we try to get them to work immediately. And maybe that'll help them stick in church. But what we're really looking for for those babies is we're looking for them to demonstrate virtue, a willingness to change. There are some things they already know. I'm sure for Ruth, she knew she needed to take care of her mother-in-law. She knew that she needed to work in the field. She couldn't just go and be a bum. There were some things she already knew, knew to do. And so your disciple is going to know some things that they ought to do. And we want to see them add virtue by just doing those things. What are some things that your disciple might, a ba even a babe in Christ, might know they're supposed to do? Witness. Go to church. I heard that one. So, man... Pretty much everybody knows. Man, I'm saying, I should probably go to church. Somebody else say one? Witness. Witness. Maybe they, I, man, I got to tell other people about this. Pray. 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 There's some real simple things. They may know, man, I need to read the Bible. I don't, I'm, I don't know what really to do. Or maybe they try, and if they're by themselves, they may not be able to continue that because babies need milk. And you know what milk is, right? The mother eats, processes it, and breaks it down into a simple form that they can receive it. But those are some things that you would expect a baby, and they're going to have to begin to show that they're willing to change. So when we talk about this idea of uh, that they need to add worship, the, go the goal is to, uh, or the, they need to add virtue, the goal is to establish in worship, which is essentially just obedience, submission to God. So uh, the next point you have in there about the role of the worship of God. 
That's what we see. Would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 22? I'm going to try and do this quickly because I want to leave some time for, for some questions at the end. Genesis chapter 22, uh, verse 5. You know the story that Abraham is called to offer his only son Isaac, right? And it says in verse 5, And Abraham said unto his, uh, to his young men, uh, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. What was he going to do? He was going to go sacrifice. He was going to go give God the thing that was most precious to him. He was going to obey the Lord even though he didn't understand it or it cost him everything. Not just like his relationship, his, his love for his son, but also... God's promise was that He was going to be a great nation, and now He says, take your only son and, and sacrifice Him. So He's going to go obey. He's going to submit to God no matter what. And, and that's kind of what God's goal was in Genesis 22. Look at verse 12. You kind of know the story, right? Right when He's about to slay His son, God stops him. And, and He says in verse 12, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. He's going to obey God. He reverences God. He puts God as authority in his life. And so when we talk about worship, that's what we're talking about, right? Sometimes in our minds we think of worship as being singing or music, and certainly that can be an expression of that heart attitude of submission to the Lord. But really what we're talking about, we want to establish a disciple in the worship of God. We mean in that uh, obedience and submission to the Lord. So Chris is going to take us through that, that section in your notes that's principles to remember in establishing the disciple in the worship of God. Yeah, so the principles to remember is the more practical side of what that looks like. Now, if you're asking, how do I know when I've seen virtue? These are some things to be looking for. The first thing will be a person cannot, that's your next blank, a person cannot be discipled unless they are willing to obey. Uh, virtue can be defined several ways. I like to just define it simply as uh, willing to do what they already know is right. It's pretty simple. Virtue, just simply we're willing to do what we know. And so you add to your faith virtue, and true worship is a necessary requirement for that in discipleship. A person who's not willing to change, of course, can't be discipled, right? Uh, if you will not put, into, put the, the principles of new life into practice, uh, he can't move forward. We tend to think that time and lessons will bring him around, you know, if we just pump some more knowledge into him, uh, that, you know, he'll, he'll figure it out, but it's really not the case. Uh, he's got to be willing to change, add some virtue, start seeing them do, like he said, you know, go to church, some, some of the things they already know. Um, in Matthew 7, 24, uh, we see the difference between someone who has virtue and someone who doesn't. Um, if you'll flip to Matthew 7, we'll read a couple verses there. Uh, Jesus gives this analogy of a house. You know, there, there's children's songs about this story here about building a house upon the sand. And you can't effectively build a house without a sure foundation. The wise man built his house upon the sand. There you go. I know that one. Um, heard that in many languages. Uh, Matthew 7, 24 and, uh, through 27. Therefore, whosoever heareth, it's very important that word, heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which, buildeth, which built his, his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings, 
of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon the house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And the difference between these two men wasn't in what they heard. It was what they did or didn't do. One of them did, one of them didn't. And that's the difference, you know, in, in the presence of the life of a disciple, you want to see them doing what they're hearing. You know, some disciples hear it and do it, some don't. And so, you can build with beautiful and excellent materials, but if the foundation is not sure, well, great is the fall. Um, so, worship. Worship needs to be presently demonstrated. That's the goal number one, worship. It's got to be present in the life of a disciple. And this is demonstrated by conversion for the new believer. If the disciple is one has been saved for some time, then he must demonstrate obedience. Um, and when faced with the Word of God, he's going to turn from his previous way to the way of the Lord. Uh, John and Paul, John the Baptist and Paul both uh, talk about um, these works or fruits meet for repentance. In Matthew 3, 8, John says, Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance. See, fruit is what grows out of your life. And so you're, you're sowing to the flesh and you're reaping corruption or you're sowing to the Spirit and reaping uh, life everlasting. And so the fruits that come out of your life, if they're the fruit of the Spirit, you see what's growing out of their life, you know, that, that's what's going to reveal whether or not there's worship in their life. What, what is the fruit? And then Paul talks about it as works. Acts 26, 20. But showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of Judea and then unto the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. And so both of them point out fruits meet for repentance. Works meet for repentance. Evidence that there's repentance, that there's obedience, that there's a change. If you don't see that, um, then they're not establishing in worship. Um, I could share a story. There was a guy in Mexico. I grew up in Mexico, a missionary kid. When I refer to Mexico, that's what I'm talking about. And there was a guy in our youth group. He had long hair. This is back in the early 2000s when the goth look was in. He had the long Sweet. hair, the black nails, the chains, like the works. Um, and his sister and his mom were very faithful to church. He wasn't, you know, he, he wasn't into the whole God thing. Uh, but we all prayed for him. Our youth group wanted His name was Marco. Um, and everyone prayed for him. But he really wasn't, he had been saved when he was young. He wasn't interested in serving God. But one day uh, during the summer, he came to one of our events and I don't know, something just connected with him. God's Word finally hit home to him, I guess. And the next week, he came back, haircut, cleaned up, very different look, and almost didn't recognize him. And, you know, we, we know that a physical appearance, long hair, whatever, is not necessarily the heart of the issue. But when we asked him, dude, what, what's with the haircut? What's with the look? Trying a new style or something? He said, no, nah, when God got a hold of his life, he said, I knew that that was just my rebellion. That's why I did that. I was acting out. And when I decided I want to get right with God, I knew that that had to go because that was my way of saying, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to look how I want to look. And, and all of that was simply motivated by his rebellion. He knew that had to go. And so I think it's a really cool example of this virtue. He, he didn't know much about the Bible, but he knew his rebellion had to go. He knew his hair was rebellion. He had to cut it and because that's what he was doing to act out. And so he recognized, if I'm going to follow the Lord, I've got to start making a change. And the first thing I know to do is I need to quit being a jerk and, and rebellious and cut my hair if that's what needs to happen. Those are the kinds of things you're looking for. Yeah, and sometimes those won't be as obvious as others. Like that's an outward, it's very easy to see. Um, that's the deal with discipleship. It, it's about a relationship where you're walking with somebody. And so if you know somebody and you're, and you're living in their life and they're living in yours, you get to see how they treat, you know, 
depending on how old they are, their spouse or their parents or their coworkers or their boss or how they're uh, treating other Christians. You get to see how they respond to when things don't go their way. And so those, you won't be able to discern whether or not there are fruits meet for repentance if all discipleship is to you is just we meet once a week to go over a lesson. And or if you don't inspect like the the topics that we'll talk about in the lessons and when we get to the parts about the lessons, if you don't make them really practical and and be willing to talk personally and inspect their life, you won't know whether there's a change because you probably won't even see the things that are wrong. In many cases, sometimes it may be obvious and other times it's not going to be. But if you don't see that change, it's impossible. Look, if they don't add virtue, they can't add anything else. These aren't levels where you could skip, or these aren't uh, stages where, or steps that you could skip one. It's okay. You have to have, to your faith, virtue. And so make sure that you're looking for that in discipleship. Maybe you're here and you're just a disciple right now. You're, you're just trying to grow yourself, um, and you're not ready to bring somebody else along. It always requires change. For, for John the Baptist, he said, bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. For, for uh, Paul, bring forth works. Meet for repent. There had to be evidence of that change. That's right. That evidence is not always like Marco, haircut. But you want to see um, the fruit meet for repentance. It's it's an internal submission evidenced by external obedience. Is all you're looking for. Um, a few practical reminders about worship. Worship is a biblical way to discern who is really serious and ready for discipleship. You know, Paul told Timothy. Uh, I mean, this is our verse for discipleship, uh, 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. If they're not faithful, they're not serious. He says to disciple faithful men that may be able to teach others also. If they're not faithful, uh, they're not serious. Uh, worship is the decision of the disciple to respond in, uh, respond in submission to God's goodness and God's sorrow. And so God works in two ways, um, both through goodness and through sorrow. And both of those can lead to change and repentance in the life of a believer. And he should be responsive to both. Um, Romans 2.4 talks about this goodness. Or, or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? You see, sometimes God's goodness and longsuffering, and if you know what longsuffering means, it, it's withholding what you really deserve. Sometimes um, parents yeah, I'm, do that again. You know, that longsuffering, like, don't, don't do that again. Or I'm going to... You know, whatever the punishment is, and that's long-suffering. It's like, you, you deserve a spanking now, but I'm going to lay off for a minute and give you another chance. And when God gives us long-suffering and goodness, we should recognize that and say, you know, God, God didn't give me what I, should, what I deserve, and that should lead in the life of a disciple to a willingness to change and, uh, and repent. And then in 2 Corinthians 7.10, we see the sorrow. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. And that would just be, I've heard it defined as conviction versus guilt. You know, conviction when, when there's godly sorrow, or maybe you, you call that conviction, and you recognize your sin and you're sorrowful over it. Or you can respond in one of two ways. Well, that really sucks that I screwed up. I hate that I'm a sinner. I want to change. Or, oh, I'm just a failure. I should just give up. You know, there's two responses. In the life of a believer, you want to see the response of repentance. When there's that godly sorrow, you should see, well, let, me, let that sorrow motivate me to change then and follow the Lord. Um, <clears throat> and you can't force a disciple to worship. You can't force a disciple to want to um, 
repent and to change their life. You'll notice even Jesus doesn't. If you look at John 6, uh, verses 66 through 69, um, this has always been very intriguing to me because a lot of times we want to force them to die. You, you really shouldn't, and you should plead with your friends and your disciples. You should encourage them to follow the Lord. But there comes a point where if they don't want it, you know, God never begged anybody. In, in verse 66, from that time, many of His disciples went back and walked no more with Him. And said Jesus to the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. So Jesus didn't chase them down. He said, You guys going to leave too? And, you know, again, your disciple, you should encourage them to follow the Lord. If, if they mess up, you probably don't want to just be like, Well, you, you out of here or what? But you can't beg someone to follow the Lord who doesn't want to, and Jesus doesn't either. Um, and it's, it takes some longer, uh, takes some people longer than others to develop this, and you just have to prayerfully consider how much grace a person needs. Uh, I've discipled a couple of people, and they grew at different rates. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I, I'm in middle school ministry, and I have some eighth graders that, and by eighth grade, they look like young men and women and others that I'm like, you sure you're not in third grade? <laughs> some of them grow differently and, and some of them grow quicker than others. And, and it's the same spiritually. Some, some take a little longer to, to get things. I had three brothers and my parents always said, some of you guys learned real fast. Some of you just really liked learning that lesson. And some believers take longer than others. and You just have to prayerfully consider uh, how long one needs. And worship is your next is a daily attitude of obedience. That leads to growing in Christ-likeness. Um, and again, we just mentioned this. In Western Christianity, we like to pump knowledge, and that'll, that'll fix everything. Um, but, you know, there are levels. Not, there's, they're not steps. You can't skip one. You've got to add to your faith, virtue, and then knowledge. If there's no virtue, knowledge only causes destruction. Um, and so, uh, you want to see that virtue coming in before you just pump more knowledge. Um, yeah, sometimes we see this play out like um, where somebody doesn't demonstrate like a humility to God's word and that they'll change, but they keep learning more and more. And all it does, uh, you know, First Corinthians says that knowledge puffs up. And so, you know, if you start giving them more facts about the Bible and give her deep, they want deeper things, you know, and you give them that, but the heart's not right. Hebrews chapter 5 says it's, it's necessary that the heart not be established with meat, but with grace. And so it's these, this ability at the beginning to establish them in worship. If, if you just keep going through lessons, you finish all the lessons, but you don't accomplish the goals. You don't accomplish this one of that they've added virtue. Then what you're going to end up with somebody who's completed, but you wouldn't want them to reproduce in anybody. Mm. And they finished through a tool, but... Man, that it's what was supposed to happen isn't accomplished in their life. They haven't really grown, and now they don't want to go do that tool again. They think they're above that, and so you end up with in kind of a predicament there. So make sure in, in the beginning times you're you're adding uh, this this virtue. Yeah, a few notes. Um, you know, there are levels, not steps. So you've got to have obedience to truth, and you're going to notice that uh, a, a disciple who has a, is establishing virtue is going to be uh, sensitive in all topics, be willing to submit to any truth that they come across and eager to, to submit to it and, and apply it to their life, not just learn it and move on. Yeah, there will um, be lots of subjects, like in those lessons, things that will come across just through the lessons. Of, uh, and you'll see them uh, tomorrow when uh, Pastor Greg goes through 
uh, all the different lessons, but they're just basically topics. As you go through things like dealing with sin or the local church or baptism or whatever it is, they'll, each thing that they learn, they should be demonstrating that virtue, that they're willing to obey it, that they're willing to, to live what they're learning. Really cool example in the life of one of my disciples is as we hit each of the lessons, um, like he said, there, there are topics in these lessons. If you haven't seen them, they address certain issues. And as we hit each lesson, it was like God was lining up opportunities for him to submit to these things. So as we hit, um, as we hit the giving lesson, we were coming up on our Go conference. Um, and we had a series of messages that you preached as well leading up to that about giving, the levels of giving. And uh, my disciple gave so sacrificially, it kind of hurt me. <laughs> you know, like, ouch, man, that's... And it was, inc- it was really cool to see. We just hit that lesson, and, and he was submitting to it. He was like, okay, well, then I'll give. And he had prayed, and God laid an amount on his heart, and he was eager to give it. Uh, as we had um, lessons on job in the workplace, um, he was presented with some obstacles at work. And he handled them biblically uh, as, we, as we faced uh, the lessons on um, the, the lost world. He encountered suddenly several opportunities to witness to friends, and he did faithfully. And so those are the kind of things you're looking for in disciples. You're hitting these lessons. See them doing it. And again, like he mentioned a minute ago, if you're not involved in their life, you're just doing lessons, and that's it with your disciple, you won't know. Um, and I have the privilege of serving with my disciple in ministry now, and so I got to see those things played out in his life because we had a pretty active relationship. We hung out all the time outside of just doing lessons. And so when God hit him with things, um, I knew about it. So it was a very cool thing to witness. Um, and then last note is um, your disciple must submit to God's Word. I think this is very important, um, again, in, in our culture in our society, it's easy, to, it's easy to make disciples of us. We want to be sensitive to have them submit to God's Word. Uh, I think it's very important that, uh, that you, you establish the Word as their authority, not yourself, because uh, you can reproduce the wrong thing if you're not careful, and you don't want to reproduce you, you want to reproduce a disciple of Christ. And so uh, you don't want your political or social, environmental, economic, any of your worldviews, that, that shouldn't be what's being pushed, is simply the Word of God is established. Because um, I'm not interested in producing a Chris Allred. I'm just simply introduced in producing another follower of Christ. So make sure it's the Word. Yeah, and there's a, you'll probably be tempted to. Usually we're ready to give advice to people, even when it's something like, you know, about marriage or whatever it could be about. You want to give some experience that you have or what you thought the way I, man, so something my dad told me. Make sure you're always making God's Word the authority. And that way they get used to looking to God's Word. That's the reason why it, it could actually backfire on you huge, huge if you're giving them advice and what your preferences are, or your specific convictions on something, um, because then they begin to despise you, maybe because they lost something or they gave up something for you. Um, you want them to see what God's Word says about it. And so always make God's Word the, the point of authority. Very important. Yeah, it's good. So how do we know that the disciples added virtue? Well, the first goal, of course, establish them in the worship of God. So it's going to be evidenced by voluntary obedience to truth. Whatever God brings up in their reading, sermons, lessons, uh, it doesn't mean perfection, but you want to see obedience, a a trend of I'll I'll do whatever God shows me. Virtue is the strength to do right such that it produces change, healing, deliverance, and transformation. Uh, It's going to be evidenced through prayer, their prayer life. You should see evidence there and um, through continual prayer, peaceful prayer, uh, an eternal perspective in their prayer, kingdom-centered prayers, and powerful prayer. And they don't need to know a lot to pray. It's pretty simple. Um, 
And then baptism. It should be evidence through believer's baptism. That is, uh, in, in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, it is the critical link between evangelism and discipleship. And so, if they're not willing to submit to that, it kind of halts you. And then lastly, evidence by faithful stewardship. And money is, in our world, uh, a big resource that we all have to be stewards of. It can be an idol, but it can also be an expression of worship. And so you want to see that playing out in their life as well. And those are, um, I don't know if those evidences are written in your notes. Are those in there? Okay. You'll find that it, in each one of these, when we talk about the evidences, once you get the lessons, uh, that'll make a lot of sense because basically all he's doing is the, the topics that are covered, they're responding in that way. And I mean, it makes some of them make sense like that. Yeah, that would, that'd be an evidence of worship. That'd be an evidence of adding virtue, obedience. Um, but it'll make even more sense when you see the tool, the lesson. All right. So, uh, then we get to goal number two, and the goal number two of personal discipleship is to establish the disciple in the Word of God. You know, we're, we're Baptist, man. We've got to have everything alliterated. We've got the, the worship of God and the Word of God. Um, but truly, it, it fits so appropriately for what we learned, right? So we learned uh, the characteristics of, of a little child is uh, that they have spiritual worship. They've They've been established in the worship of God, so they have spiritual worship, right? We see that in uh, Matthew chapter 18, that Jesus talks about their humble, the humility of a child, uh, the virtue of a babe. First John chapter 2, the little children know the Father, and they know their sins are forgiven. They, little kids like to walk. Uh, they like to talk with their father. You'll begin to see that. Uh, so they have that aspect, a little child does. But they got a deficiency. And remember what the deficiency is, is instability. I don't know if I get, yeah, sorry. I'm bad on these. Um, instability. First John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 explain that they struggle with sin. You, you know, if you've had a little child, like a toddler, I got a four-year-old. Let me tell you, uh, that's, that's a difficulty for them. Obedience and uh, how to treat others and keeping the rules, right? So... Uh, they got to learn what it, you know, how to be restored, and what do you do? You, you say, "I'm sorry." You ask for forgiveness, and those are lessons that we teach our physically little children, and spiritual little children need the same thing. So, um, what do we add? We we add knowledge, and that's from that Second Peter chapter one, right? We add to our faith virtue, and to virtue. We had knowledge, and I'm sure Jay has pointed out to you the significance of that sequence. Um, that would, it's not just adding to their faith; you're adding knowledge to virtue, right? So, every the amount of knowledge that they receive should be commensurate with the amount of virtue that they're demonstrating. So, um, all right. So once you, once you have this attitude of virtue that you're willing to obey then what happens is the more you learn, the more you know, the more you just obey because you've already got the attitude right that you can process all new doctrine, all new truth, all new understanding uh, with the right heart. And so uh, I've got a couple of verses. We'll just go by, through them real quick. First, uh, Proverbs 1, 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In the fear of the Lord, we see the <laughs> virtue part, right? And that's the beginning of knowledge. God's real consistent with the way that he lays this out. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 23, he says, Turn you at my reproof. That's the, the virtue part, obedience. And behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. And, you know, the Bible is a spiritual book. 
It's spiritually discerned according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. Um, a lot of the reason why people don't understand the Bible is because they haven't added virtue yet. And so God's not giving them any more knowledge. He doesn't, he doesn't really want them to know. In fact, Jesus had this approach. Did you, we talk about the parables. If you grew up in Sunday school like me, probably what you heard about parables is that they're an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, right? That God, Jesus gave these parables because it helps the people understand. They're, in their, they're an agrarian society, so most of them deal with you know, agriculture. Uh, or there's all these lords and servants, and that was their culture at the time, and so they understood that. But actually, uh, Matthew chapter 13, Jesus, when they ask him, why are you speaking in parables, uh, it says that he, he tells them why. He says, why speakest thou unto the disciples? Ask why speakest thou unto them in parables? He answered and said, because it is given unto you to know, that's the knowledge, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. There are some things he didn't want them to know, the Pharisees, and the unbelieving people. So he's, actually a big part of the par, uh, parable is to conceal knowledge from people who didn't have the virtue. And so that's really important. One other uh, point that we'll point out on, on this idea of knowledge, adding knowledge, um, is that if you look at Second Peter chapter 1, sometimes the word of is strange. It says the knowledge of God a lot. So the word of is a unique, is kind of an interesting word in English. It can mean... Like, you know, you know about something, right? It can also mean that knowledge of God can mean from. Like, knowledge of God can be from God. But maybe the, the most uh, real uh, use of the word of in Second Peter chapter 1 is like the, the knowledge of God, like in a personal way, I know Him. Right? So we talk about knowledge of God. There's going to be things that we learn about God and about His Word and about doctrines, but all of those should, should drive to the point of actually knowing Him personally. So when we, we say we want to help them to add knowledge, one of the keys to that is we want them to know God, know Him personally. All right, so when we say that, how are they going to know God? Of course, it's going to be through the Word of God. And so that's, that's uh, the role of the Word of God is the next part in your blank. That it's, it is the Word of God that's going to help them to know Him. So that's why we say, for a, if we want them to add knowledge, that's something they got to do, by the way. If you're a disciple in here, your disciple maker or your teacher or your discipler, whatever you call that in your context, um, he can't add virtue to your life. You have to add virtue. And you have to take all diligence to do it. And your disciple maker or discipler can't add knowledge to your life. You have to add knowledge to your life, and you have to do that uh, diligently. But the role of the disciple maker is to establish them in the Word of God so that they can add knowledge, right? And so that's kind of the role. So let me give you a real quick, I think you got some blanks in your notes, so I'll give you those because everybody wants to make sure they got all the blanks filled in. The first one is, the Word of God becomes the chief sustenance of the disciple. It's the Word of God that sustains them. Uh, Job 23.12 Job says, uh, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4, Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Psalm 19.10 says, that God's word is more to be desired than gold, as sweeter uh, than honey. So as you're at, as you establish the disciple in the Word of God, man, it's that becomes what sustains them, right? And um, 
we'll, we'll talk a little bit about lessons and stuff, but really, when, when we talk about discipleship, when I'm talking to disciple makers, we meet with our disciple makers uh, three times a year, all of them all together, and then we break up into smaller groups so we can discuss how discipleship is going in each one of those relationships. And when we do, um, we'll usually ask, how are things going? And they might at the beginning say, well, we're on lesson four. And so I'll be oh, well, that's good. Uh, how are the goals going? Right now, in lesson, in that set of, part of the lessons, you should be trying to establish them in the worship of God. Tell me how you see that. Or what's missing? You know, what, what do you need to work on? And the goals are really important. So the, this idea of God's Word, man, when we have people reading in the Bible, we want for them to be, you know, we have journaling sometimes. It's a good tool to help people for you to see what they're reading and what they're learning. But if your disciple's not going to get into God's Word, and read God's Word, there's nothing really you can do to help them grow, right? You, they've got to they've add to their faith. You can't do it for them. And sometimes we talk about that just like in addiction recovery ministries, that they have to want it more than you do, right? They've got to want it for themselves. And so uh, it becomes the chief. Oh, man, I had all these verses. You don't need those. The second one is the Word of God becomes the final authority of the disciple. And, of course, we want to see this. We want to see them be willing to say, uh, whatever this book says, I believe it, and I'm going to obey that. Right? When you're establishing them in, in the Word of God, that's a, that's a key for that. Let me give you Psalm 119, 128. It says, uh, Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. Now, that's... That's, you know, that's that all things, that's what's difficult, right? Because we have things that we believe, the Bible's right about this, and it's right about that, but there will inevitably be parts of your disciples' life that they really have a hard time believing that would be what they need to do. Because it violates our culture, it violates our common sense, it, it violates our desires. And so um, we want it to be the, the final authority. The third and last one in this section is uh, the Word of God becomes the transforming agent of the disciple. And this really is, man, uh, when we talk about sanctification, of helping someone to become more like Christ, uh, the Word of God is, is critical to that. It's paramount. Right? So John 17, 17, um, it says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy Word is truth. It's the Word of God that's going to sanctify them. It's not church attendance, and they ought to attend church. Uh, and all the other things that may be representative or maybe um, obvious in a Christian's life, but the things that's going to change your disciple is the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God acting upon it. So let me give you a real quick a rundown. Ephesians 5.26 says that the Word of God uh, sanctifies. In Psalm 119.9 it says that it cleanses. In Acts 20.32 it says that the Word of God builds up. In 1 Peter 2.2 it says the Word of God grows the disciple. Uh, Psalm 19 says it converts the soul, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes. In other words, all the change that needs to happen in your disciple's life will be affected by the Word of God. So this is a really important thing, uh, adding to their faith knowledge. You want to establish them in the Word of God. And so uh, that kind of happens in three areas. I'm, real quick, we'll, we won't take time on these, but 1 Timothy 4.13 uh, Paul writes to his son in the faith, his disciple, and says, Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. So in those three areas, your disciple ought to attend to the Word of God. They ought to read it. right? You, 
you're going to have trouble with this maybe. With some disciples, they're, they're readers, and they're, and they're ready to get in and read. And some of them, um, some, a lot of people in our country are functionally illiterate. Uh, some people just don't, they have, really have a hard time, there are learning disabilities, they're, and then there's just laziness, and it's tough. You know, we're a YouTube kind of, you know, when they measure YouTube videos, um, you're like, if your video is a, you've got a strong video, it's a, you've got good content, people will watch it for 20 seconds. Really, 20 seconds. So if you want them to sit down and read, which people don't do very often anymore, and you want them to read for to read, you know, four chapters. It's going to take you 20 minutes, and it's going to take time. Now, we say that it sounds like 20 minutes. That's nothing, but we know. You remember the times when you struggled with that, right? So you're going to have to help them read, and that may be especially in the very beginning because they need milk. You might have to like read with them. Like you get there in their journal, there's nothing. Well, I tried reading John chapter one. I didn't get anything out of it. Well, let's read it together. And you're just helping them to see, well, this is what I learned about God, this is what I learned about me, this is what I need to do to obey what I'm learning. Right? But you want to help them in reading and exhortation, have them attend to exhortation. That's teaching. So have your disciple present every time the doors are open. Right? They ought to be present for sermons and for Sunday school. And man, they, they can get turned on to other kind of, uh, you know, I'd be very selective with who I pointed them to as teachers. But right now in our world, there are podcasts and there are uh, YouTube sermons and you can, you can get content anywhere. Uh, you help them with that. But, and then to doctrine. And those lessons will take them through uh, just primary doctrines. Um, so help them to attend to those things as well. All right, let's jump to the, the principles they need to remember. Yeah, so first there's a sequence. All right, so when establishing the disciple in the Word of God, there is a sequence. Like we said, add to virtue, knowledge. So knowledge comes after virtue. Uh, you don't add knowledge to faith. You add knowledge to virtue. Um, and like he said, it's commensurate with obedience. And this means that all knowledge that is gained should be matched by obedience to said truth. When they gain knowledge, turn around and apply it. Obey it. Uh, every increase of knowledge must be added to virtue. So it increases more obedience. So if they're obeying everything they know, well, that's why they need more knowledge. So now, now that I'm obeying everything I know, teach me more so I can obey it too. That's really what you're getting at. Um, he read the Proverbs verses, Turn you at my reproof, Proverbs 1.23, and behold, I will pour out my, uh, my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. You obey what you know, God gives you more. So make sure you're seeing virtue uh, before pumping in more knowledge. And if there's rebellion or simply failure to obey God in certain areas, that might be a stopping point where you need to camp out and deal with some issues, however that looks in the life of your disciple. Uh, I've been blessed. I haven't really had to do much of that. Um, but knowledge comes after virtue. Knowledge also comes af uh, before public participation in ministry. Their work in ministry must be upon the foundation of knowing Jesus, identifying Him. You know, the disciples identified Him first as the Messiah, um, and, and got to know him before they headed to Jerusalem. In and, and John 5, 1, after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. But before he took them up there, they had to get to know him uh, to be ready. And so you want your disciple to know, uh, know the Lord uh, and have a, a very strong walk with him before they jump into any kind of... Uh, public participation in ministry. Um, and Jesus prepared the disciples first, and so we can't anymore expect our disciples to jump right in. That's what he kind of alluded to. You know, people get thrown right in early. 
Yeah, we, we have somebody, uh, I know somebody who got saved, and like a few weeks after they were saved, you know, they, they had gone to a church, and people were really excited for the church, that we ought to be when people get saved, but it was immediately, can you teach the fifth and sixth grade boys? And it was like, man, what are they doing? You know, this, this is not good for those boys. That's not good for the, for the man either. Um, so there needs to be uh, an order to it. You add to your faith virtue, then knowledge, and then temperance, and we'll talk about temperance next. Secondly, focus on helping your disciple know God. All the lessons, sermons, messages, all of that, you're trying to reveal God to them um, so that they can place their faith, faith in Him, not His miracles. Um, so this would be the era of the charismatic. If He hadn't revealed that He was Christ from the beginning, the disciples would have placed more importance on His supernatural acts than on worshiping Him. But as they grew to know Jesus, well, they could focus on worshiping God, not experiences. So God's going to speak to your disciple through His Word, answer their prayers, protect, provide, and prove Himself to them through this process. And your job is to reveal God in His Word and in their circumstances. Yeah, so that this is a really exciting time to have a disciple because God's Word just comes alive to them. They start really fellowshipping with Him, walking, and He's going to answer their prayer, things they're praying about, and God's going to do it. It's going to be like, man, God did this miracle in my life. And all those things, we always want to point it back to not just the, the your your prayer request was answered and you got things done in your life for the good things that God brought. You want them to know God, to know His faithfulness, His goodness. You want them to see His, His righteousness, all those things. Always point them back to knowing Him. Yeah, I actually got to see that play out really cool with one of my disciples, that, the same guy that I talked about, that giving sacrificially when he gave. Uh, he was, in his job, he was capped out with his raises. Like they told him, you can't get any more raises. Um, you're, you're at the top. Well, he, he gave that amount that even hurt me. I was like, whoa. Well, like two weeks later, we're meeting. He says, dude, you won't believe what happened. My boss came and said, hey, we want to move you into another department, which opens you up for this raise. And we did the math. It added up to like 10 bucks more than what he gave mm -hmm. over the course of a year. So it was cool to see that in his life. Like God answered that prayer. He gave, and the money he gave, he had plans for, not just like to blow on stuff. He had actual real plans that I would have said, though, yeah, that's really wise. You should be planning that money for that. And he gave it, and God immediately turned around uh, and resupplied. And those are the kinds of things, man. It's amazing to see that. And that really brought those lessons to life. And they were no longer just lessons we were walking through together, but it was real. Yeah, and credit to Chris. He, 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 li he knows his disciples. They have a relationship. Um, oftentimes in our fellowship, we hear people say that ministry runs on the rails of the relationship. If, if all he did was meet with him for lessons, and it stayed pretty superficial, it's like, I'm the instructor, and you're the learner. He, he would never know those or be able to then point him back to, look what God has done. This is how you can trust God. And every time he asks you to do something, he'll be faithful. He'll take care of you. Um, so it's a cool thing to see that happen. Uh, based, base their service, your next blanks, on a relationship with him, not works for him. So this is kind of the opposite of the spectrum. Instead of basing... Um, faith on his miracles here you you base your service on relationship with him not works this would be the the opposite end the error of the legalist uh, if he had not revealed that he was Christ from the beginning the disciples would have placed more importance on performing works uh, man's tendency than on worshiping him but as they, they again as they grew to know Jesus they could focus on him and as uh, they could focus on him as God and worship him as such and then the power to serve would come out of their personal relationship with him 
Uh, so it is imperative that our disciples work for the Lord, that that flow out of a vibrant relationship with Him, not just duties and things we do. Mm. Um, and again, we love to do that in church, like, oh, oh, you're a Christian. Oh, this is what it means to be a Christian. You do these things. Oh, you got to go do this ministry, do that ministry. And uh, I, I also have, just like his story, I, I knew a guy I was working with, trying to, I was witnessing to him. He wasn't getting it. One day his, his brother invited him to church. You know, I'd, he wouldn't come to church with me, always too busy. But, you know, when a, a friend or a relative, sometimes that'll do the, the trick. So his brother got him to church. Dude got saved. Praise the Lord. Well, his church was a small church that immediately, within weeks, threw him into youth ministry teaching kids. Mm -hmm. And then within a matter of like two months, his pastor made him a deacon. Mm -hmm. And dude still lived like a lost person at work. I knew him and I was like, ah. when he told me he became a deacon, I was like, how do I not be a jerk right now and not be excited for you? But, and to this day, I have a loose relationship, but we don't work together anymore. But it kind of stumped his growth immediately, you know, getting plugged into, you know, when you, when you get plugged into things you're not ready for, um, it can really do more damage than good. And as either you or Joe said, it's easier to build up children than repair adults or something to that effect. And now that friend of mine is in a state of now, if, if he really wants to get discipled, he's in a state of needing repair rather than being built up because he's been thrown into all these things he's not ready for. Um, so you want to be, be careful of that. You know, as you know your disciple, what they're ready for, and prayerfully consider how to, to tag them along in their involvement. Um, I've discipled a couple people. One guy I didn't bring into ministry. One was ready. I brought into my middle school ministry with me. It just depends on where they're at um, and what they need. I'll spend your time... Uh, with them in places and activities that can help them to know you as well. Just like Jesus did with his disciples, he didn't just spend all the time with the masses in, in Jerusalem, but he actually got to know them, let them get to know him. So do that with your disciple. Um, and we've got a few questions here. How do we know the disciple has added knowledge? Well, the second goal is to establish them in the Word of God. So it's going to be evidenced by a consistent quiet time with the Lord. Um, both of my disciples that I've recently had uh, in the last couple of years uh, we're always telling me what they read. Man, this is cool. What do you think about this? I had this question, you know, or they listened to some of the podcasts of uh, a few of you guys in the room, or I love pastors. We listen to you guys. And, um, and they would, hey, I was listening to this guy, or I was listening to this podcast. What do you, what do you think? And we're digging through the Word together. And that's a, that's a, to me, that was one of the sweetest times with my disciples is getting in the Word together. You want to see them spending that consistent, but not just digging up dig topics, but their consistent quiet time. They had prayer time and they had reading. You want to see that. You want to see evidence by consistently seeking answers for life's issues from God's Word. Um, if you were in that counseling a minute ago, man, that was good. You know, the world doesn't have the answers for our issues. They need to be going into the Word for it, not in the world. And you want to see it evidence by faithfully attending and serving the church. And at this point, we just talked about you know, plugging people in too early in ministry. There's a difference between serving and ministering. Um, my friend that got plugged in as a deacon and teaching students too young, that could be damaging. But there are opportunities to serve. You do want your disciple serving, plugging in. There are opportunities that are not above their pay grade, so to speak. Uh, you know, when I was being discipled, I wasn't teaching anyone, but I can keep kids in the, in the nursery. Uh, doesn't have any prerequisites, sign me up. You know, that my disciple got me plugged in. And so you want to see those kinds of things in your disciples serving where, they, where they're qualified to serve. That does need to be happening. And then yeah, that's faithfully. That's kind of like kids. Like, even if you have kids, you know, there are some things your kids can't do. My son's four, but he can't put away the knives out of the dish, dish, from the dishwasher, right? But he can do other things. And so he can wipe down a toilet. And he loves that. <laughs> <laughs> Who wouldn't love that? Um, 
So I love you just it. find things that are appropriate for their level of growth. Uh, you'll also see it evidenced by relationships that include giving and receiving biblical instruction. Like I said, my disciples were, were always telling me, hey, I got this coworker. I was trying to witness to him. He had these questions. I don't know what to do with that. You know, they were constantly trying to uh, invest the Word of God in other people. That's an that's a awesome thing. And evidenced by a life of contentment. You know, see some joy in their life and contentment in, in where they're at in their relationship with God. That brings us to goal three. All right, goal three. Um, uh, the goal three of personal discipleship is to establish your disciple in the work of God. Like I said, we're Baptists, right? We got the worship of God, the Word of God, and the work of God. Um, and, and truly, this is just again, we're looking at second, the stages of growth in 2 Peter chapter 1. We see the, the characteristics. Let me find my notes on this. Uh, the characteristic. Where am I? There we go. Well, maybe I got ahead of myself. Is that right? All right, yeah, the characteristics of the child. Remember that the child has knowledge because they've added to their virtue knowledge. So now they have knowledge, and we see that in 2 John chapter 4 and 3 John chapter 4. It says that, that uh, his children walk in truth. Um, so they're walking in, they're obedient to truth. So they have the knowledge, and it's been added to virtue. Uh, but the problem with children is they're weak. You know that? Like, my son punches me all the time. Like, he loves to fight. He th we're always playing good guys and bad guys, and he's punching me, but it doesn't hurt at all. You know why? Because he's a wimp. He's weak. <laughs> and the same thing's true spiritually with children. Ephesians chapter 4, uh, Paul actually says, be no more children. You need to grow out, up from being a child. And the reason why is because children are tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. And so your disciple, when they grow, it's great. It's a sweet time when they're a child, but they're, they're weak, and Satan can take them. And there are lots of false teachers out there, and there's lots of false teaching. And, and so they have to be strong enough to be able to stand against that, so they need to keep growing. And so what do you do to strengthen something? And so you need to add, is your uh, blank, is temperance. You add temperance. <coughs> so temperance... And maybe that word is not as familiar as some of the other words like immediately. Temperance is a, a process of strengthening that you do by uh, purging some elements and adding some others. So you talk about uh, tempered steel or tempered glass. It's, it's had some things removed from it that make it weak. And it's had some things added to it so that it can be strong enough to fulfill its intended purpose. Right? So... That's what we're wanting to do with uh, children. Yes? What was the deficiency? Oh, sorry, weakness. Weakness. And then was it spir spiritual walk? What was the... Oh, spiritual knowledge. Knowledge. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, feel free to... You know I'm bad with the clicker. I'm probably bad with going hitting the blanks, right? Um, so, so temperance... Um, when we find that word used really clearly is in 1 Corinthians 9. You can go ahead and turn there. Um, in 1 Corinthians 9, we're going to see it used uh, in the context or with the illustration of like an Olympic athlete. So, you know, if you're going to be an Olympian, there are some things you've got to get rid of, your, get out of your life, and there's some things you've got to add to your life. Something you might want to get out of your life if you're an Olympic athlete, uh, athlete is you might have to get out like chocolate chip cookies. I don't know. My daughter made chocolate chip cookies yesterday. 
I didn't get to eat lunch, and so I had like six of them. Um, an Olympic athlete can't do that, right? They're, they'd probably have a specified diet, and there's some things that they got to add to their life that I don't do, right? They may get up at 6 a.m. and work out every day. You know, I, I don't do that. So, right? So if you're going to... If you're going to have temperance of an athlete, you're, you're going to have to add some things and take some things away out of your life. Like Hebrews chapter 12 says that you're in a race and you need to run that race. In order to do that, you need to lay aside every sin and the weights that so easily, uh, sin that so easily besets you and the weights as well. Some things, that, they're not sin. They're just not going to help you run as fast as you could. And so in the idea of adding temperance, there are some things that are going to have to be added to a disciple's life and some things that are going to have to be taken away so that they can be strong enough to fulfill God's purpose. And this is kind of consistent with the way that we see uh, about children. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. So something's okay for children, but in the process of growth, you've got to get rid of those. Our culture kind of struggles with that. We glorify childhood and adolescence. And so we have immaturity, you know, real, like, let me just say it this way. Maturity takes longer, to, more years to arrive to than it used to, right? Because people are unwilling to get rid of things out of their life that aren't helping them. And to add things, they don't have the discipline to do that. So uh, let, me, let me give you the second one, the role of the work of God. And this really is how people are going to add temperance. So you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm probably the only person who's not. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Pick it up in verse 24. This is in the context of, if you read the verses previous, it's about ministry. Paul saying, well, let me just read verse, let's start at verse 24. Uh, that, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but, but we an incorruptible crown. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it unto subjection. Lest by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. And so we see this necessity of temperance, but the context in which he's talking about this, if we back up just a few verses, like in verse 19, he says, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. All right, so I don't have to do these things. I'm free, but I'm going to make myself a servant. He goes on in verse 20 and says, Unto the Jews I became as a Jew. So what, to what end? For, for what purpose? That I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law as without the law. Not being without the law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without the law. To the weak became I as weak, that I may gain the weak. I made all things to all men, that I by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake that I might be partaker thereof with you. The context in which he's talking about temperance is the work of God. It's, it's the work that God's called him to do. And so this is, this, uh, the work of God is really, it's the crucible. It's, it's the environment in which God is going to help them add temperance. It's where, it's the refinery, the smelting place, where God is going to turn up the heat in their life and remove some of those elements that need to go. So, 
you're going to find disciples in this stage. They're, you're wanting to see them add some things to their life because it's going to make them better ministers. Because it's going to allow them to, you're going to see examples of this. If your disciples adding to their faith temperance, you'll see them. Uh, we've had disciples that quit this job and take another job because now they can either come to church consistently or they can be involved in this ministry that they want to be. It's, you're going to see them do things, uh, add things to their life. Like some of them are going to get up earlier in the morning so that they got more time to study so that they can minister to their kids because they don't want to just get home and they're always absent from their kid's life. You're going to see them uh, sacrifice things from their budget because God's called them to do this thing over here. You're going to find this all the time. All right, this is, this is the temperance part. So uh, we're not going to take time to go through Let me give you the blanks and, and the references and you can go through these uh, on your own. The, it's all from John chapter 17. Uh, but when we talk about the work of God, what are we talking about? It's, it's defined for us in John chapter 17. It says in verse 4 that Jesus finished the work that God gave him to do, that the Father gave him to do. What was that work? Well, in John 17, Jesus has not died on the cross. He's not risen from the grave. He's not talking about that work. He's talking about the work, as, as is very clear in the context, of training 12 disciples. And so you can see in there clearly defined what the work of God is, that work that He finished. And so, I don't know if I got these on here or not. I don't think so. Um, the work of the Lord to the lost is evangelism. That's your blank, evangelism. It's helping people to know God. It's, it's bringing them back into a right relationship with God. It's what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you may want to write these verses down, we won't go there. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20, calls the ministry of reconciliation. He says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things become new. That sounds like a sanctification process, right? And then he says, and God has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. If you are in Christ, if you've been made a new creature, God is giving you a ministry to reconcile lost man to a holy God. And so the ministry, the work of God to lost people is evangelism. Jesus did this with his disciples. He trained them on how to do evangelism. He did that in the environment of one-on-one. -on -one. They, they watched Jesus before they did anything. They watched him evangelize one-on-one. -on -one. You remember Nicodemus? John chapter 3? Evidently, we're not told the disciples were sitting around, but evidently they were because John records it in his gospel. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes and Jesus listens to him. He's, here's this religious man and Jesus cuts right to it and says, Hey, your religion is not going to do any, you any good. And he says, You must be born again. Right, he showed them, they saw that in John chapter 4. There's a Samaritan woman. And man, the disciples had actually gone into the town to get some food. And they come back and evidently Jesus had told them what had happened. They saw the effect of that later. But Jesus takes one-on-one -on -one time with a lady that no one else would regard or probably talk to. And he's sharing the gospel, right? He's reaching and reconciling lost people. He did that also in a small group environment. In Mark chapter 1, or I'm sorry, Mark chapter 2, uh, you see the, the sick of the palsy is brought. Remember that story? And they, they have to break up the roof and they lower him, lower him down to the ceiling. There's so many people that they can't get to him for the press. Uh, I actually got this verse written down. Let me give it to you. Mark uh, 2.14 says, And he passed by, and he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, and said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. You remember that story of Levi or Matthew? And then what immediately follows is 
Matthew brings all his publican tax collector friends into his house, and Jesus sits down with them. And many of them believe on Jesus, right? So he's teaching them how to do it one-on-one, -on -one, and then he's showing them, this is how you can do it with a group of people. And so you should begin to see these things in your disciples' life, but probably you're going to have to be like Jesus, because you're the disciple-maker, and show them how to do it. We can't expect them to know how to share the gospel with somebody if they've never watched us do it. Most of the failure of evangelism isn't a failure in our disciples. It's a failure in our disciple makers to walk with somebody and say, hey, we're going to start knocking on somebody's door that you don't know. No big deal, right? We'll never see them again. Click, click, click. And we're going to have a, a gospel conversation with somebody. Or, hey, we're... Let's, let's invite some of your friends over. Or let's start in my neighborhood. I'll invite some of my neighbors over. I'm going to share my testimony when, when we get them over for dinner. And we can do that in your house. right? So we want to demonstrate and teach them how to be evangelistic because that's the first part of the work of the Lord. The work of God to the lost is evangelism. Uh, he also did it in mass evangelism ways. Let me just, uh, it's Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Uh, Jesus actually shows, like when he gathers a multitude, he even showed them how to uh, get a speaking platform. He got into a boat and said, man, sometimes you're going to need some little separation between so people can hear you. Right? That's the way they learn to preach. They learn by watching Jesus. And maybe you don't have a large group that you teach to. Maybe you're not a Sunday school teacher, but maybe you are. Maybe, maybe you can bring them to your family and let them be a part of your family devotions. Wherever it is that you're able to do ministry, especially to the lost, you want to make sure that they're involved in that. All right, let me give you the second bu uh, bullet you have. The work of the Lord... Uh, to the saved is, is discipleship. And if we were to read John chapter 17, I don't know if I told you these verses or if they're in your notes. They're in the, excellent, excellent. If we were to read that, we'd see this transformation that happens. And it starts with, he says, and he gave them, I've given them thy word. So he, he puts the word of God into his disciples and, and man, they're, they're growing up and they're being changed so much so that it says that the world hates them. They're totally separate from the world because of God's Word. And so that's a, a big part of, uh, of the work of the Lord is, you know, when they're, when they're lost, you need to share the gospel with them so they get saved. Once they're saved, you need to grow them up. God didn't intend for them to stay babies. So uh, let me see. In this, Chris talked a minute ago about the difference between service and ministry. Uh, so early on, Maybe when you're helping them to add virtue or you're helping them to add knowledge, it's cool to get your disciple doing something. Responsibility is good for people. All right. Um, and so working in the nursery, if you can, you know, whatever the requirements are in your church or being a greeter or uh, cleaning the floors or whatever, making coffee, anybody can do those kind of things. Well, I don't know. Some people, for some reason, say I can't make good coffee. And I, it's perplexing to me, but um, but ministry is specifically about the Word of God and the souls of men. And so when we're talking about discipling people, we're talking about getting them involved in the work of God. Here we're really looking for, they needed some opportunities to open God's Word with people. And so one of the goals for your disciple is obviously that they become a disciple maker. In fact, if you don't ever become a disciple maker, you're not really a disciple of Jesus. Because... Jesus was a disciple maker. Of all things that he was, he was certainly about making disciples. That was the work God had called him to do. And so the goal is not just for them to complete this program in the church, but they should then begin to make disciples as well. Um, and let me give you the, last, the blank, last blank there. The work of the Lord to the disciple 
is equipping. And we see this with uh, John 17, 18, where Jesus says, now I'm sending them. As the Father has sent me, now I'm sending them. So he equipped them, equipped them. In fact, the, the whole intention of Jesus calling them to be apostles, calling them to follow him. In Mark chapter 3, it says that he called them to be with him and that he might send them forth to preach, right? There's a ministry that he had involved in. All right, so let's jump to the principles to remember. I think maybe there's some other verses in there. We'll, you can look those up at your leisure. So, uh, when establishing the disciple in the work of God, a few things, principles to remember. First of all, the work of God is for every disciple. I like how Sam Miles and the guys at MBT say, every member a minister. It's for every disciple. <clears throat> if they're not willing to one day participate in ministry, it may not be... Discipleship may not be for them. Uh, so there's a great work to be done. The laborers are few. So everyone's got to get involved. We need all hands on deck. In Matthew 9, uh, Jesus sees the multitudes and is moved with compassion on them. And He tells His disciples, The harvest is truly plenteous. The laborers are few. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest that He will send forth laborers into His harvest. And interestingly enough, after they pray that, God sends them into the harvest. And the next, the saints are to do the work of the ministry. Um, it's not next in your notes. It's next in his notes. Next in my notes. The saints are to do the work of the ministry. Uh, not just the pastor. It's not James' job to reach Bartow County. It's Oakland Heights' job. Um, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So his job is to perfect the saints so that we can do the ministry. It's not all on the pastor. Um, every member has a job, has a gift, and has a purpose to be a part of the ministry. And every believer is gifted for the work of God. 1 Corinthians 12, 6 and 7, there are diversities of operations, but it's the same God which worketh all in all. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. So everyone has a different gifting, and everyone has a different job. Sports analogies work for me. Maybe they don't for you, but I played football. I wasn't the quarterback, but it was important that we had one. And it was a, I wasn't a lineman, but it was important that we had five of them at least, you know. And everyone has a job to get the, the goal accomplished in the church. Not everyone's the pastor or the teacher. Not everyone's the intern, but everyone's got a job. And so if everyone doesn't do their job, um, the work doesn't get accomplished to its potential. Romans 12, 4-8 tell us about our different gifts. We're all gifted differently for these different purposes. And in 1 Corinthians 12, tells us that every member is important. And in Ephesians 4, tells us that we all have a purpose. So everyone does need to be willing to fulfill uh, their purpose and to pour his or her life into someone else. Uh, Luke 12, 14. Uh, 1248 says, For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much, of whom of him they will ask the more. Can we, can we give them the, uh, the blanks? The blanks for them. You guys have Blank verses two. under the blanks, uh, under these points, right? Point number two, involvement in the work of God is the disciple's responsibility. In other words... If you're a disciple maker, make sure you get your disciple involved in a place where they can minister. And we'll skip through. We'll just move on to the points, right? Yeah. Temperance places priority on the work of God is number three. 
So recall that the work of the Lord develops temperance. Yeah. Um, that excellent verse that you got there, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, mm -hmm. just, uh, you know, I'll put it up there real quick, but just being steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, right? So the temperance, when they're adding that ministry, the work of God becomes the priority of their life. So how do we know the disciple has added temperance? Well, the third goal is to establish them in the work of God. It will be evidenced by fulfilling the spiritual role in the family, and their evidence by involvement in evangelism, and evidence by involvement in discipleship. You're going to see those things playing out. All right, so cool. I was trying to save some time at the end. I do want to say that these are for our church and some of the other churches like Jay's church, Joe's church. Uh, these are the, the goals that we've adopted. Uh, and we've done that because they line up really well, we believe, with 2 Peter chapter 1. Now, as a, as a whole, the Living Faith Fellowship has some goals that are pretty close, and I think they're in your notes there, establishing the worship of God, the Word of God, the local church, and the ministry. So you can kind of see how those are pretty similar uh, together. We kind of word ours just a little bit differently. Um, uh, but we want you to know about that. And, as uh, some people uh, say, your mileage may vary um, based on whatever church you're in as your pa pastor sees the, uh, the process of discipleship and what the goals need to be. But let me just emphasize that the goals are really the goals. From here, we're going to get even more practical into things like our function of uh, programming, of the cost of discipleship, personal discipleship, um, and lessons and things like that. But the goal is not to just get through content, to finish lessons, to have them be your friend or hang out with you or even for them to, to get some things in their head. We really want those goals uh, to be accomplished, of establishing it, whether ours, for us, it's the worship of God, the Word of God, and the work of God. And if, if at any point in there you mentioned you, you've never had a disciple that you had to just pause and dwell in a different area, but if you're going to be an effective disciple maker, you've got to recognize, oh, this goal's not being accomplished, and we're getting through the section of lessons that are geared to establish them in the, the worship of God, maybe. Well, then there's no sense in continuing on with lessons that are designed to help them to uh, add knowledge, we, we need to really put the lessons aside for a little while and dwell here. Uh, the goals are, are the goals we just mentioned. It's helping your, your disciple add to their faith. And so that's a, that's a key. It's a big distraction for us in the, in the Western Christianity. We think about information. Like, uh, like if, if they just know more, that's what we think. Classes and content. But really it is uh, supposed to be a spiritual growth process that you're helping them add to their faith. And so um, right now, I mean, I'll, if you guys have questions you want to ask, I'll be here. And you're welcome to, to stay seated and ask or come up here and ask or whatever. But I know time is up and some of you are meeting people and need to go. Some of you may need to use the restroom. Uh, so I'll let you be dismissed. Uh, thanks for, and you guys are hanging with us on that. Uh, if you got questions. Uh, we're free to to talk about those. We hope this message was a blessing to you. 
If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.